so now there's going to be a state. There's going to be. So I'm actually a delegate for Romanov. Um, but uh, but there's going to be a state level caucus or a state level assembly where we choose who's going to go from our air or a county level assembly to choose who we want to go to the state assembly. Right. And they're going to choose at the state assembly. But there's another way to get your name on the ballot, which is uh, through getting signatures. So if and I think Hickenlooper's doing both. Oh, okay. So if you could, so this is only to decide who's going to be on the ballot on June 30th. And there's basically two ways to do it. One way is to to the caucus. The other way is if you collect enough signature Secretary of State with them, you can get on that way. And I think Hickenlooper's doing both. To get for the okay, so this isn't. I thought this was like the primary. No, no. Like we have such a effed up, convoluted process in Colorado. Um, so no, like it's not it's not over for Hickenlooper by a long shot. God damn it! Yeah, yeah. Fuck. Unfortunately. Fuck. 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 Yeah. So That's... he can get his he, he'll get his name on through the uh, through the signature campaign. Uh, I think a few other candidates are trying to do that too but i mean it's certainly good for romanoff i mean it's going to put him in the spotlight uh the yeah pocket, no kidding assembly is going to be dominated by his people and i mean you know i think it shows i think it shows the the power of sort of grassroots organizing because um well and, and you know also too like it's sort of sad and i mean i i get the coronavirus part of it and maybe that's why people stayed away but still like i walked in there and there was nobody at my table um, yeah, like I was in the cafeteria and my precinct was, a, a, you know, a circular table in the ca in the cafeteria, sat there, was kind of like looking at my phone because like we were supposed to start at two o'clock on the dot. And one other woman comes in, an ACLU lawyer. Uh, she comes in at like one fifty five and no one else showed up. So we're like, OK, let's do this. And we, you know, fill out the paperwork like you got to do a bunch of stuff before you even get to the preference poll. And so we got there, and I was like, well, uh, I'm voting for Romanoff, and I'm pretty, like, wedded to that idea. And I was like, who do you want to vote for? And she was like, well, I mean, I was kind of going between Romanoff, and I don't even remember the other person. But she's like, if you're voting for Romanoff, I'll vote for Romanoff. <laughs> and so he got, he got all four <laughs> delegates from our precinct. Our precinct was allotted four delegates to the county assembly, so now all four of them are going to be for Romanoff. Well, that's great news. I mean, it's great news regardless. I just, I think it's, it's so Im important that he wins that primary because Gardner is cooked. Yeah. But I, well, I don't, it, it, I don't think even the Republicans, like they're not even going to try because w what was like the most recent polling had Gardner at like 30% approval rating. Yeah. And it was very interesting to hear the, cause like we could, there were more, let's just say there were more lively precincts than ours. Like there were uh -huh. some that had like 20, 30 people. Um, I mean, I, I was sort of speculating like my precinct is mostly, uh, rental like apartments. Right. And maybe that explains the low participation rate. But, um, anyway, some of them were having these lively conversations and yeah, like the, the older people, like the Hickenlooper people were like, we have to beat Gardner at all costs. And the younger people were like, we're going to beat Gardner no matter what. Like if you yeah. vote for Romanoff, <laughs> like we will beat Gardner. 
Um, so, you know, may, like we should just put it like this, you know, it was basically like, this isn't the presidential election. Right. This is entirely <laughs> different. Like we should actually talk about what these two believe in. And yeah, I mean, I don't know who won that, uh, who won that precinct site, but anyway. Well, I guess again, it just got to keep, keep knocking doors and making text messages and stuff like that for him. Cause I mean, this is, it's the only way that you can. Yeah, I mean, they'll be able it'll to be like that. The DS, DSCC is Colorado. Yeah, the DSCC has been like in the bag trying to rig that thing for Hickenlooper from day one. Yeah, no, I know. And there were a lot of people that were talking about that. Like there were there. I heard some people saying like, well, I'm going to vote for Romanoff because Hickenlooper shouldn't think that he just is going to win automatically. Like that's not that's not a, how a democracy should work. I, I do. I, I, I was kind of curious. I was wondering, like, is that something that there has been a lot of pushback against there? I mean, I only overheard like one other precinct site. So like okay. how, and, and that's in, you know, what the white part of Arapahoe County. Yeah. So I can't tell you how representative that is of. um of the rest of the state. But I mean, I think it's telling that, uh, that Romanoff did so well. I mean, I just don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen in call. Cause the scary thing about Colorado was Bernie got first place, which didn't surprise me. I mean, I figured that he was going to win, um, mm-hmm. but fucking Bloomberg got second. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I mean, like they're consolidating around there's, Biden. Now there's a lot of wealthy, a lot of wealthy today. people in Colorado though. There are, there are, and I don't know. I mean, I was like talking with a bunch of us went out to eat last night to this Ethiopian restaurant and I was talking with Travis and I was like, you know, the only the what I'm going to try to tell myself to like ward off the huge waves of pessimism I have is that the major difference between now and 2016 is Bloomberg is going to dump a ton of money into Biden's campaign um, and Barack, like they have got to, you know, it's like, help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. Like they're going to mm-hmm. go and get down on their knees to Obama. And if they can get him to campaign in like North Carolina and the Midwest, like relentlessly, that might be enough to push Biden over the top. What does that mean? I, I, it almost feels like we live in like the Weimar Republic, you know, like the German uh, state after World War One up until Nazism, it's like there was a yeah. failed revolution, and like we just kicked a bunch, like we just kicked all the cans down the road, you know, like we we stabbed off the worst of it for like, you know, we stabbed off a military coup in the early twenties, but then this you know bastard sort of state just existed for fifteen years until the Nazis finally kicked it down, and could Biden easily could Biden beat Trump? Like, yeah, I mean. Who I'm not a you know who am I to say he couldn't? I mean, no one saw Trump coming in 2016, and like I said, I think it's there. It's a huge difference that Obama, who's like more popular among Democrats than like Jesus, um, is going to go. I'm sure is going to go out and campaign in full force for him. Plus, to have Bloomberg's money. Now, what does that say about the health of our democracy? It doesn't say anything great. So that's sort of like where I'm at with this yeah. whole thing. Like Biden could win. But like if I was Bernie, if I like what I was trying, well, I mean, I didn't really have to convince anybody at the caucus. But like if I'm at the um, if I'm at the county thing, I'll say, look, like, sure, I, I agree with you. Like Biden 
you know, appeals to people that Bernie doesn't necessarily appeal to. Fine. We, we can do that. And but, you know, you'd also have to admit that Bernie appeals to people that Biden doesn't. But whatever. Like, let's put that. Let's all put that all aside. Right now, Biden's whole campaign thing is like, I'm not Trump. And, you know, if you just don't want another four years of, you know, fucking orange goo tweeting bullshit, vote for me. And OK, that could work. But that but Trump could come back in four years. One of his kids could come back in four years. And it's like to me, if you want to put the nail in the coffin of Trumpism, you actually have to do something. And I, and I don't right. think Biden's going to really do anything. So we're going to be right back to the same position of where we were now of, you know, hey, like, vote for me just because the alternative is is, you know, Trump. Well, and that I, I that's been just kind of the M.O. Of, of Democrats for so long, it seems like. Right. Like that oh, was basically that was basically Kerry's campaign. I know. Well, and that was and, that was Clinton's and, campaign. Clinton didn't have any. There was no guiding principles. Right. Like there was no yeah. motivating um, beliefs or ideas yeah. behind either of those campaigns other than we're not the Republicans. Vote for yeah, us because and, we're not as bad as the Republicans. And it's like, and, that's just... And that, you know, and like, that might be enough this time, but what does that mean for the future? You know, like... Maybe. Republic... I mean, people, so... I know, maybe. Yeah, I mean, like... I'm not saying I think he can win. Or, right. I mean, I'm not saying that he, his I, win is a guarantee. I think, I think people are really overestimating how, one, unpopular Trump is. Um, and, and two, really underestimating how um there people are forgetting how unpopular george bush was oh i know in, in, I mean, right like it was it I, I don't a lot of people thought that it was that that would be a pretty easy election for the democrats to win because nobody liked bush but then when it came down to it they still voted for him. Yeah, no, I know. And and so but at the same time, like if if I could if anyone could predict now who is going to win, you know, they would be employed by the DNC or the RNC or whoever. Right. And so much can change. Like like coronavirus might be the last sort of bit of incompetence to fall out of the incompetence clown car that, you know, right. pushes Trump out. Who knows? Yeah. No who idea. knows? Who knows how many people? Um, how many members of Congress are going to end up with it because of because of APAC and how many people right. in the uh, executive right. administration are going to well, end up with it because knows, of CPAC? Like, like it's it, it's nuts. And I mean, and who knows how how much more the market's going to dip? Like in Italy, they're talking about quarantining, sixteen uh, million, and shutting down essentially the economic heart of Italy, which is the northern industrial region. Yeah. Uh, you know, so who knows? But anyway, uh, <laughs> let's. Let's go. Let's go ahead and transition in. So, I mean, what I want to talk about today is, you know, there's like even recently there was that weird New York Times article about Bernie and the sister cities yeah, thing. Yeah. Where they, you know, and so I guess where I what I want to go with this is I think that there is this association in the American mindset of, oh, like socialist, you know, so, like revolution, like, you know, all this bad stuff is going to happen. And, you know, really, like, what I hope we talk about in this episode is, you know, how you have to put 
at least the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union in the context of almost, you know, a decade plus mm -hmm. of war. And that so much of what this, the initial Soviet state was, it was born out of the First World War. And, and this, you know, and this happened in a lot of other countries. It's just that, you know, they won the war, like the war sort of it ended and there was an attempt anyway to return things to their, their pre-war state. Whereas in like the losing countries like Germany, the Soviet Union, Italy, well, I mean, Italy was on the winning side, but didn't really get what it wanted. Right. Um, there, there sort of like was no going back. Like the world, like the First World War touched off this powder keg that consumed, you know, most of the world again in World War II. And so I think it's very important to talk about that just to, I think, put Bernie Sanders in context and to say that like, you know, his, you know, our revolution and, and his talks for change are much, I think, much different. And if he were to be elected, which, you know, who knows at this point, again, like we just talked about, like who can predict what happens, you know, like Biden could be diagnosed with Alzheimer's or, you know, early onset dementia next week. And that would completely flip the script. Right. Uh, I think I'm going to leave our earlier conversation in because this is an it's an interesting transition that I think we can focus on kind of the political economies and the context in which we put things. Um, sure. And, and talking about the, the way uh, our democratic system, its own failings, and kind of the, I don't want to say excuses we make for it, but, you know, kind of the way that we justify it, that like, okay, this is, you know, this is not, you know, it's not perfect, but we have a really good, we have a pretty good political system, and this is the one that, that works for us, and, you know, 200 some odd years of American exceptionalism that shows us that we're on the path to, you know, success or whatever. Um, yeah. Versus, you know, the way that we frame those types of discussions in the context of other countries. Right. Oh yeah. That, I think, yeah, that, I think that would be, that would be a good way to, uh, you know, to, to phrase these sort of things. So, you know, welcome back to O Comrade, where art thou? Um, you know, today what we're going to talk about, and, and we are aware, like, about the this, the war in Syria, and, I mean, I think that our earlier episode on Syria talks or covers a lot of what I would say about that if we did a follow-up episode. I mean, I don't know how much there is to add to that, right. other than I'm not surprised that Turkey and Russia came to the brink and could still go, you know, still could still go to war. Um, I mean, I think it does show the commitment that the Putin state, the Putin regime has to becoming a, a power broker in the Middle East, you know, becoming that reliable third party that regimes in the Middle East can rely on. Um, but in terms of anything to add beyond that, I mean, you know, see our earlier episode about Syria for that. But, you know, we transitioned to uh, talking about, you know, Bernie Sanders, the Democratic primary and and trying to put this in somewhat of a historical context uh, with, with the Russian Revolution. Uh, not that I particularly believe that Joe, or that um, Bernie Sanders will, you know, enact a Russian-style revolution in this country. <laughs> uh, not that I particularly believe that he is going to get the sweeping changes that he demands, or that not right. demands, but like that he calls for and that a lot of his supporters believe in. Right. It's uh, not like, you know, it's I, not like he, he is going to win the primary, then win the presidency, and then day one we've got, you know, everything on his platform is enacted. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's certainly not going to happen. 
Um, I mean, at this point, like, you know, he's facing a very contested primary with Joe Biden. Um, and, you know, who I, I don't really want to try to get into predicting the future too much. Uh, but, I mean, I think that it's it's important to look at what's going on in the United States and compare that to what happened in Russia in 1917 and to say, OK, well, you know, is is like the deluge about to happen? You know, is a complete collapse about to occur in this country or or is this country even, I think, open to something that Sanders proposes? And, you know, you can talk a lot about America's opposition to socialism. You know, you can talk about our opposition to the Soviet Union and to some extent, you know, other communist regimes throughout the world during the Cold War. And, and that deeply, I think, entrenched viewpoint about socialism in America. And that's certainly part of this context. Uh, but the other part of it, too, is looking at um, how how radicalized a country can get. And mm -hmm. that's sort of where I want this conversation to go, because in so many ways, uh, World War One and the failures of the czarist regime leading up to that prepared the Russian population, uh, prepared like sort of like laid the groundwork for the Soviet state. And without that, I don't necessarily know if, um, you know, that the course of history would have been changed in that way. So to, you know, even begin, like when we talk about socialism um, and we talk about at least Marx and Marxist, I, you know, vision of how the future was going to go, you know, Marx always figured that it was going to be Germany or the United Kingdom or perhaps the United States that became the first country to go uh, that would, you know, embrace communism. Uh, you know, and why did he think that? Because he was locked into that notion of historical progress, right? Like mm -hmm. history happens in stages. And so it would be impossible for a country like Russia that's um, not, you know, that hasn't entered what Marx would consider the full capitalist stage yet to, to go to skip a stage, so to speak, and go straight to socialism or go straight to communism. Right. Marx never thought there that was, that would happen. There was a, there was actually a big debate um, around this whole concept if i if i remember right like i want to say was it at the 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 paris not the paris commune but like the the first or second international where the whole idea of and especially among revolutionaries in russia um you know do do we need to um how, how do we how do we enact the revolution do we do we do it through um, forcing Russia into becoming a capitalist state and um, uh, do, you know or, or do can we just like you said skip that step so I, I'm trying to remember now well, like, that's what, where I mean that's the big debate between Lenin and the Bolsheviks and the which means I mean it's kind of funny because I can't remember the name of the Russian party congress where this happened but you know like a, uh, like Bolshe in Russian, like a Bolshevik is like a major, like the majoritarian. Right, right. right? Like so the literal definition. The Bolsheviks the are in the majority at this party conference, and the Mensheviks, like Mensheviks, the... less. Yeah. It's like the minoritarians. And really, it's actually reversed. So the Bolsheviks are in the minority, and the Mensheviks were in the majority. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. But, right, like that's sort of Lenin's contribution to Marxism. You know, Lenin says, OK, well, what you need. Well, first off, he says the reason why this revolution can happen in Russia is we're sort of like we don't have 
the capitalism that Germany has. We don't have the capitalist industry that the, the UK has. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have some, you know, nascent forms of capitalism beginning. And so we're the weak link, or sorry, the weak link in the capitalist chain. So actually, we're the place where this can get started because capitalism hasn't so deeply entrenched itself here yet. And so we can sort of be the place where this begins, and then we can sweep away the rest of the capitalist countries. And then that was, you know, one notion. The other notion or concept of Lenin's theory was this idea of like the full-time underground revolutionary party. And that was the big debate with the Mensheviks. You know, the Mensheviks Mm -hmm. were like, we should enter the parliamentary system. You know, we should try to develop working class consciousness um, through, you know, political action, through, um, you know, parliamentarianism, for you know, lack of a better word. And, and we need to gradually bring them along. And, and Lenin's idea was like, no, you don't do that. Like you're you're never there. That's never really going to happen because of all these reasons, you know, because of of how capitalism inherently works. So you need this full time, dedicated revolutionary party to sort of smash the state. And, and drag everybody else along. Um, and, you know, with that being said, like that particular brand of revolutionary politics, uh, you know, that's not going to work in a place like the United Kingdom. That's not going to necessarily work in a place like uh, Germany or even the United States where you do have a much more established democratic system, you know, where you do have um, a, a party structure uh, and, and, you know, more importantly, like when you have uh, a lot of people that are uh, vested in, in how the system, you know, works right now, um, you know, and I, I think like, too, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think when we look at Joe Biden's rise uh, in on Super Tuesday and, and how he's picking up all of these endorsements, uh, I mean, I do think that some of that is this idea of him. And of course, like there's always room for disagreement on this. Right. But it's like there are so many people that have something vested in the system and dismantling the system, even if it would benefit them potentially down the road, is a very dangerous proposition. Well, this is the whole idea of the uh, lumpen proletariat. Yeah. Well, well, not just that. But I mean, you know, you you think about um, I mean, you think about all sorts of Americans who have, you know, who are doing all right. I mean, could they be doing better? Yes, they could. But, you know, we we fear what we don't we, we fear the unknown. Right? Yeah. We fear and the it, unexpected. I think there's, I, there's also like a bit of that is is design like it's by design. Right. I mean, yeah. Um, but, you know, like the whole idea behind the American suburbs was that, you know, if you give if you give someone a small plot of land to manage, they'll be too busy to ever become uh I believe it, like the, the quote was like, you give a man a house, he'll never have time to become a communist. Or so. But the idea is that oh, yeah. like, if you give someone that, that small bit of ownership, then you're not only going to um, you know, occupy their time and prevent them from, becoming, from developing class consciousness, but they will also then you know, see themselves as part of that upper class. They will have skin in that game. Yeah, sure. And but I mean, you could say a very similar thing about uh, about Russia at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, you know, sure, there were like peasants that wanted to take the landowner's land. Right. I mean, they dreamed of like, you know, the great repartition when they would take the landowner's land. But like they didn't want to go any further than that. Right. I mean, like they're they're We're not talking about like atheism and worldwide revolution 
and right. you know all of these sorts of things. Like we're we're not getting there yet. So you know we we have, and I think it's still like a fundamentally true. And I'm not going to say that it's wrong, but like a fundamentally deep human desire to avoid the unknown, to avoid extreme change, to you know to be like you know, for lack of a better word, like to be conservative. And so, you know, the, then the question is, and like, and that's sort of, that was sort of Lenin's idea, right? Well, like these, like these people on their own are never going to be able to, to make it over the hump. Um, and, you know, that being said, I also don't think that, uh, uh, you know, a revolutionary party, like underground party like that is enough on its own either. But now, you know, now we're getting to, what allows this moment to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Which is world, which is World War One, and so without kind of belaboring it too much, I mean, like the sort of the build up to that, you know, Russia fights the the Russo Japanese War in 1905. Um, doesn't go very well for Russia. I mean, they're the first <laughs> European power to lose to um, to Japan to lose to a non-European power. Let's let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, it was an unmitigated disaster. I mean, part of it was uh, distance, right? Like the, the Trans-Siberian Railroad had only recently been completed. Um, you know, the, the Russian Far East is uh, much, much further away than from the like the, the you know, from the metropole, from like the, the center of Russian industrial and population right. centers. So it's a very difficult position to defend uh, regardless. But, um, you know, they, they made some tactical choices uh, the, or tactic, poor tactical choices, uh, the greatest of which is, you know, their Pacific fleet was surprise attacked and locked into the harbor, couldn't really do much. Uh, so they the Baltic fleet was the next sort of like major Russian fleet. So the Baltic fleet sails out of the Baltic Sea, you mm -hmm. know, through... Uh, probably maybe around Britain or through the, maybe not through the English Channel, but has to go around England and Ireland, right? The British won't let them use the Suez Canal. They sail all the way around Africa, you know, around um, around South Africa, through the Indian Ocean, and then in the Tsushima Straits, which is I think around Korea, they get am they get ambushed by the Japanese Navy and are completely obliterated. And that was sort of like the last straw, right? Like the Baltic mm -hmm. fleet is completely destroyed. They inflict very minimal damage on the Japanese fleet. Uh, it's it's a disaster. And this touches off a, a, a revolutionary wave. You know, this is when so many, the, of, you know, like Lenin and other revolutionaries, this is when they see their chance and they, they try to take it. Um, and if you've ever seen like the famous Eisenstein movie, like the battleship Potemkin, you know, there's a mutiny on the, the battleship uh, Potemkin, there's there's revolts all over Russia. They're put down. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's not like it's despite the fact that there was a lot of activity, the Tsarist state survives. Uh, the Tsarist state adopts, you know, several reforms, including the parliament. Um, you know, we talked about land reform a little bit the last the last episode. So the Tsarist state, you know, survives. And it looks like to the revolutionaries that their moment has sort of been lost. But, you know, meanwhile, throughout Europe, there's that system of alliances that's being constructed, right, that lead that leads Europe into World War One. You know, Russia gets involved in that, obviously, because they're they're trying to fend off um, Austria, Hungary, as well as as Germany, uh, the German Empire, I should say. And they're 
you know, slowly getting dragged into this war, although they don't really know it yet. And then, of course, the 1914 happens, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And all of a sudden, Russia finds itself in this system of alliances and finds itself needing to prepare for a war that it's not ready to fight. You know, it doesn't mm -hmm. have the, the most modern military. I mean, it has the manpower, right? It has the numbers of individual soldiers, but in terms of like professionalism, in terms of tactics and everything, it's not as good as the as the German army. Uh, that's proved to be true very quickly in 1914 when Russia loses uh, several like early battles and loses them in kind of spectacular fashion, uh, and has to retreat through you know Poland, which they then controlled, and and a lot of Eastern Europe, and they you know find themselves in a stalemate. And and this is sort of where I want to pause. And, and say that, um, you know, this is where this is sort of where we're going to put a pin in talking about Russia and talk about this broader, you know, this broader phenomenon that occurs throughout the world during World War One. And like for me, World War One is, I think, very under misunderstood and underappreciated for how profoundly it has shaped the world that we live in. Uh, because, I mean, everyone talks about World War Two. Right. Uh, I mean, I think in a, the American consciousness, that's that's obvious because we it was a much a war. We were much more invested in than World War One. Um, and, and certainly like the, the greatest generation, you know, we still have living World War Two veterans. So it's more closer in our living memories. But I mean, World War One is really, I think, what what profoundly changes the 20th century or the course of the 20th century and what profoundly changes uh, the world that we live in now. And, you know, what I sort of what I mean by that is, um, you know, World War One, I, I think, is really the first time where we where we can talk about uh, what they call like a total war. A war that right. involves every element of society, from the soldiers at the front line to the civilians back home who are asked to make, you know, sacrifices. Uh, and there are a number of things that lead to this. You know, one is industrialization. Um, it is much easier to build bombs, artillery shells, you know, artillery pieces, machine guns, tanks, planes, whatever. It is much easier to build them and equip a modern army. Uh, and thanks to the French Revolution and the French revolutionaries, we now have the idea of the modern army, which is the, the modern like conscript army, like the mass draft. You know, before wars are mostly fought by professional mercenary mm -hmm. armies and, and it's not drawing all these different elements of society into the military like that hasn't that doesn't really I mean, that that happens after the French Revolution. Um, there's some indication of it during the 19th century, but it comes full force during World War One. But I mean, I want to go back to this idea of total war uh, because, I mean, really, that's that's what changes everything. This idea that the uh, the an entire society has to be committed to fighting a war and winning a war, because even in democracies, that results in profound changes. Right. You see nationalization of the wartime economy in places like the UK, in Germany, uh, the sedition laws that locked up Eugene V. Debs in the United States. Right. Right. Like these are all elements that you would look at and say. That looks a lot like communism or, you know, like a, a state run economy or totalitarianism like that. The, that seems to have like those elements seem to have more in common with 
Soviet totalitarianism than they do with um, liberal with democracy. Yeah. And and we're you know and, and we'll we're going to get to we're going to get to the how that impacts the Soviet Union in a second. But this happens throughout the entire world, right? I mean, like dissent is put down, right? Like dissent is crushed. The economy comes under the auspices of the state or the military or, you know, some sort of centralizing factor. Uh, everybody's lives are sacrificed. I mean, literally on the front line, but also back at the home front, which is, you know, like, right, like you're, you don't have individual rights. Or like if you do, they're subject to the needs of the state. They're subject to the needs of this society fighting this war. Uh, and, and, you know, we see this in Russia as well. Like from the onset of the of the war in Russia, there was a lot of angst and anxiety amongst the the army and amongst the central government of, you know, like how are we going to maintain food supply? Because mm-hmm. as we talked about in, in prior episodes, so much of uh, what the Russian state's economy was built on was exporting grain. And so then the question becomes, well, how do we divert a system, or how do we re-engineer a system that's designed to export all this grain to keeping it within our territories and, you know, using it to feed our large army? And already the czarist state says, what we're the most afraid of is price speculation. We're afraid of these middlemen who are out there who's go- who are going to get in between us and the producers and jack the price of grain up, and we have to get out there like the state has to step in and cut out the middleman. And if that sounds familiar, that's like that's collectivization. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so what like so already the um the um Russian state is saying that you know that this is a priority and that the way that we're going to solve our food supply problems is by going directly to peasants and getting grain from them. Uh and then, you know, as that becomes more difficult Right. The Russian state is going to create all this sort of propaganda about those that get in the way and Mm -hmm. how they're hampering the war effort. I mean, again, it's like the exact sort of same thing that happened that the Soviets will use later on during collectivization. So it it happens during World War One, like World War One lays the groundwork for this. Right. Like the, the foundations for collectivization, those aren't born out of Marx or like those aren't necessarily born out of you know, high minded theoretical discussions about how socialism is going to work like that was a model that was sort of presented to the Soviet state. And it's one that they continued. Right. When we get into Mm -hmm. like this sort of gets back to this is something that Americans might be more familiar with to some extent is surveillance. Right. Right. The, the, The surveillance state and actively monitoring the population and it's mood to understand how you are supposed to respond to it and, and how you can sort of redirect the population's thinking. Every single society engaged in World War I uh, in, was involved in censorship, was involved in like monitoring private correspondence to find out what the like what the population's attitude towards the war was. You know, again, like that's not something that the Soviet Union invented out of thin air. Right. This is something that is the result of the First World War. And then as we um, and then as you know, as the war continues, like I'm I'm sure a lot of people might have seen 1917 recently, um, you know, as the war like gets devolved into trench warfare um, and and is it and is it looks like the war is going to be a much 
longer pro like a much longer prospect than was originally thought you know that is really when you see all this centralization within these states economies right centralizing mm -hmm. production centralizing um pretty much everything towards producing war materials like this is especially true uh in germany and lenin and the commun and the bolsheviks are looking around and they're saying look at this right like this right. is exactly a, a model that we can adopt and it wasn't like you know they didn't get it necessarily from marx <laughs> you know they they didn't get it from you know sitting around cafes in switzerland drinking you know coffee and and debating this right like they they saw this play out during the war and so you know this happens in russia as well right i mean like russia is centralizing its economy for war production mm -hmm. uh it's it's focusing its efforts on the war um and but you know the war continues to go badly for it. you know russia does have its kind of its greatest achievement uh, i want to say in like 1916 1917 like the brusilov offensive if you've ever heard about that i mean it's actually the a russian general who figures out I how haven't. to break uh, so he actually is the one who figures out how to break the trend, like break the stalemate of trench warfare. Uh, and I mean, this this can be our sort of bone we throw at the at the military history buffs. But I mean, you know, he, he figures out that, you know, so the problem with trench warfare in World War One, right, or like the issue they run into is you you bombard the enemy line days on end. Right. Right. Well, that's sort of a hint as to where the attack is going to come. But, you know, you bombard the enemy line for days um, kill a lot of kill some soldiers that way, but don't kill as many as you probably should because they're going to withdraw from the front line. Uh, in the meantime, all this shelling has ripped the ground up into these huge craters and shell holes, which makes it almost impossible to move through. And so then, when you try to launch your attack across it, your enemies already come back to their front position when the uh, artillery bombardment stopped. You know they're waiting for you. Uh, your soldiers are trying to go through this landscape that looks like the surface of the moon. And, you know, needless to say, like, it goes very badly. And um, Brusilov is the one, or Brusilov, I, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name, but he, he figures out that there's a solution to this. So, you know, what you do is you very secretly bring your trench line as close as you can to the enemy trench. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you build up reserves in the in the background. Or in in you know in the in the rear these tactical reserves, and you the front line soldiers you know you don't weigh them down with a bunch of packs and and extra ammo you know you kind of give them really only what they need make sure they can move very light and quick and what you do is instead of bombarding for days you have a very quick lightning fast bombardment send in your soldiers you've overwhelmed the front line. Right. Mm -hmm. And if there's big pockets of opposition, you just tell those soldiers who are on the front line, you just keep going. You know, if you find um, uh, a big, you know, chunk of resistance, you just move around it and you keep going. The point is just to keep moving forward and make the enemy respond to you. And you leave the pockets of these huge enemy pockets behind. And then the the rear guard units that have the bigger weapons, you know, more troops, they'll come in and they'll wipe those up. They'll clean those right. up, but the important thing is you keep going. And so by using those tactics, he almost entirely wipes out the Austrian-Hungarian army, grabs a huge swath of territory in what's now like Ukraine and Poland. But they, you know, they just, they run out of men to see it through. I, I was going to say, that's got to be, I mean, like I, 
I get the tactic, but that's also got to be very um, costly personnel wise. It was. It was. I but, mean, like know, as most as is most trench warfare, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's sort of you know what what you got. You know, you, you play with the cards you're dealt, right? But right. anyway, the other generals don't really follow through in this plan, and they sort of run out of the men and materials they need to see it through to the end. But nevertheless, it's this try, you know, very triumphant. Um, like this big triumph of arms, triumph of tactics. But I mean, the problem is, and is that Russia, like the the rear, right, like doesn't have the men, the materials, the infrastructure to support this kind of a war. And mm -hmm. that is what dooms Russia, right? It doesn't have the industrial capacity. It doesn't have the railroads. It doesn't have those things that are going to allow it to see a conflict like this to the end. And that's going to be their, you know, their undoing. But um, anyway, that's a little bit of an aside, but it's actually going to be the Germans that observe this and pick up on this. And they're, you know, they're going to adopt it into what are called stormtrooper tactics uh, that they use on the on the Western Front. But then more importantly, like these these tactics of Brusilov, like th this is the genesis of Blitzkrieg, mm -hmm. which is going to, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, like shock and awe the world. In, during World War II, and is going to be sort of the foundation of military tactics throughout the 20th century. You know, this sort of like lightning strike through the enemy line, advance at all costs, you know, surround big groups, big enemy formations, and finish them off later. Uh, this is the genesis of all of that. So, I mean, I guess sort of my point is like the, you know, the Russians get this sort of reputation for incompetence uh, during World War One, And I mean, that's not, you know, that's not entirely deserved. Right. Well, it I seems mean, like, it seems like to me, like one of, like a, um, a way of thinking that it, that, that most Americans can kind of recognize, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds a lot like a similar situation that, uh, the Southern states were in, in the U.S. Civil War, right? Mm -hmm. Where, whereas just, it's not. It wasn't for lack of tactics that they lost. It was just that they did not have the industrial strength or manpower yeah. to keep up and a so, keep a, up a sustained um, war of attrition. Yeah, I mean that's certainly true. I mean, um, except that you know the, the Russia does have the manpower, right? Like right. compared to its enemies, it does have the manpower. What it lacks is that industrial capacity. Right. It, 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 it lacks the infrastructure to like what made the Germans able to uh, succeed for as long as they did and hold off, you know, most of the European powers in the United States for as long as they did was was like their use of the railroad, like logistics, you right. know, making sure that all the sold like they could move as many soldiers as they could from point A to point B as fast as they could, you know, better than their opponents could. You know, Russia lacks that. And so Russia, you know, and we'll we'll kind of go back to our main theme, you know, things start off bad for Russia. They have some moments where they're, you know, where they have some military success, but those sort of long narrative is they're being slowly pushed back and they're, you know, they don't have the, the military, um, you know, infrastructure to win uh, a victory. Um, they're pulling, you know, they're pulling peasant conscripts from throughout the empire and, you know, if you're a peasant and you're from a village that you probably never left before, 
or, or if you have left, you haven't gone very far, and all of a sudden you're mm-hmm. being asked to go way off to the frontier to fight this war. You know, this is another thing where, like, the, the total war, like, you know, society that's not ready for total war uh, comes in. And, you know, of course they're not really going to want to fight. Right. You know, like, of course they're going to be like, eh, what am I doing here? Like, this doesn't, you know, this isn't me. And, and, and you know, the meantime, like, my family, who's going to help them with the harvest? You know, we're going to starve if I'm not back there. Um and so, as the, you know, as the war continues to go poorly, these soldiers have been, um, you know, these soldiers are, are deserting in, in, in really high numbers. Um, but, you know, to go back to the total war thing, too, there's also something else about total war that fundamentally sort of changes a lot of these soldiers. Because when you look at who supported the Bolsheviks the most, it was soldiers. And most of these soldiers were, were peasants. And there's, you know, a large argument within... Uh, I think Russian history that World War One sort of puts these peasants on, not like on a national stage, but it makes them aware of so of the world outside of their village, right? And it makes right. them aware of everything that's going on and how unjust some of this really is. And so, you know, again, where I'm going with this is the Bolsheviks and other revolutionaries. You know, we we talked about this a little bit with the going to the people movement. They never really had a good inroads into the villages. Mm-hmm. They never really did that well there. Um, some of the populace did like the, um, some of the, um, like, uh, how would it, like the, the Bolsheviks wiped them out, but like these, they were called the socialist revolutionaries, which is kind of a misleading name. Um, I mean, they were really more about, uh, keeping Russia an agrarian society and just sort of, you know, using the commune to build out and, and um, transform Russia that way. And I mean, and the main reason why the socialist revolutionaries did so well was, you know, they're, they're talking about seizing all the landowners' land. But, you know, anyway, uh, to, to go back to the war, you know, the war makes all of these men uh, who have guns, so good, good group of people to have on your <laughs> side, right? Right. Um, they make them receptive to the Bolshevik message, which is, you know, you're fighting this war not to save your village, you know, you're not fighting for your family, you're fighting it for um, the czar and his family, you're fighting for these industrialists who don't care about you, and, you know, as these men are watching their comrades get slaughtered on the front line, they're like, yeah, you know what, like, that, I I, I can believe that, like, that makes sense to me, Mm -hmm. and, you know, Lenin's whole motto was peace, land, and bread, and to a, to a peasant, you know, soldier audience, like that's a very appealing message. But again, like they wouldn't have been ready for that message if it had not been right. for World War One. And then, you know, the other thing that World War One does too, right, is it, it pulls peasants into the army. It also pulls people into factories. Uh, this is, you know, an era where Russia does industrialize very quickly, right? They sort of have to. I mean, they don't, they do it in a very haphazard way. But nevertheless, the, the, the population that is, you know, you would call like the proletariat increases. And again, right, they're having to work very long, hard hours in these factories. The war's not going well for them. Who's out there in those factories telling them, hey, I'll end this war, you know, and we'll bring a stop to all of this? It's the Bolsheviks. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it to maybe try to get, get this back to... Um, the American political scene, um, I don't know, like, you know, as I think about Bernie Sanders and I think about the progressive wing of the party, 
you know, I sometimes do wonder if America at large is ready to hear that message or is at least ready to to listen to it. Uh, you know, that, you know, I don't know, uh, because on some level and I know that like Scandinavia is had a social democracy without the need of all this war and revolution. But, you know, I think there's right. also a lot to distinguish Scandinavia, like they're much more homogenous. They're much smaller populations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, on some level, like I think that this shows the the monumental task that someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or, you know, even Eugene Debs back in the 1920s had before them, which is, you know, all of these revolutionary movements that uh, that we talk about, like or the, the biggest one, like the Soviet Union or the mm -hmm. China, like in China. Right. All of them are born out of war. And we haven't had that yet. Like all of them were born out of a society where, you know, like Bernie talks about like wanting to tear it down or like, the, you know, you see some of these memes like, you know, burn like B-E-R-N, burn it all down. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, it's we. I, I mean, there is definitely an aspect of um, the, the politics in the United States got a little bit more uh, revolutionary in times of. Um, not necessarily war, but, you know, kind of the times of chaos, right? So, I mean, I I'm thinking after the Great Depression, I mean, you might as well have had uh, the country decimated by a conflict on that scale. Um, well, I mean, at, at the same time, though, like, you know, not really. Like, I mean, I know that a lot of, like, I don't want to minimize the level that people suffered during the Great Depression, but, I mean... Like we're we're talking about a society being sort of completely destroyed, uh, and not you know, and not necessarily from within, but from without, you know, like from from war, and and that right. you know that like that hasn't happened yet in the United States, uh, and you know so much of like the revolutionary project becomes is you know like let's build a better world, um, and I think that that becomes easier to believe and that becomes easier to enact. When you look around and you say, yeah, like, what do I have left to lose? You know, it's like when, uh, like I was, I watched with my stepsons, you know, A New Hope, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Star Wars the other day. And Luke initially is like, you know, I can't get involved in like, you know, that whole scene with Obi-Wan Kenobi. And what, what pushes him over the edge? Uh, the stormtroopers have destroyed the farm. They've killed Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. And he goes back to Ben and says, there's nothing for, he, for me now. You know, there's nothing here for me now. Yeah, but why does that have to be, why does that have to be an external force is, is kind of what I, because I'm also thinking like in the, you uh, know, in the 1960s, uh, late 60s, when there was, um, you know, the, the effects of, of Vietnam. I mean, like we weren't, the United States I mean, that, wasn't being, certainly... being destroyed, but... Like it was definitely a, um, I think there is definitely an aspect of just, you know, seeing, seeing people, you know, like everyone you know die for nothing was was very relevant uh, in that period, and that's when sure you know that's when a lot of um, yeah that's when when a lot of lot of uh, I think that reflection like or I guess introspection kind of occurs because. You know, you're you're going over there, and um, you know, just listen to any rock song from that 
I mean, well, shit. Um, born in the USA, right? Like Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I mean, like, well, I... what am I? What am I being asked to go over and die for? This like this country where, um, you know, segregation is is still a thing. You know, like you've got all this horrific racism, um, inequality, all all of that. Yeah, sure. I, I don't want to. I don't want to minimize that. Like, I don't want to say that there there hasn't been elements of radicalism in U.S. politics. But why has that radicalism failed to carry through to something, mm-hmm. you know, like to something more like, I mean, the, the sort of classic example is, uh, and, you know, someone who I admire very much it was George McGovern in 1972. Right. Right. I mean, someone who storms through the Democratic Party, uh, the establishment doesn't see him coming at all, you know, wins the uh, a huge chunk of the youth vote that, you know, right, the recently enfranchised youth vote. Uh, goes through the convention, comes out the nominee, and utterly, you know, gets wiped out by Nixon. Now, granted, McGovern made, you know, had some things not go his way, like the whole Eagleton affair, right? Um, right. But, but that moment, right, the 68 moment, and like, you know, people talk about this in France, like the student protest in France in 68. Uh, there was so much that happened in 1968 throughout the Western world. Uh, where is it now? You know, what's its legacy? Uh, I, I don't really know. I mean, per, perhaps it's too soon to say, but it doesn't lead to that kind of severe uh, transition that you see happen in a place like Russia or a place like China. And so I'm, I'm not saying like I, I sincerely hope that a lot of change can happen outside of war. Like, I'm not saying, like, I am not at all advocating that I want a huge global conflagration so we can build a better society out of it. I'm <laughs> not, 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 I'm a, not, not a Posadas. <laughs> I, I'm saying that the, the, the project that lies before us, right, for those of us who want to change the world um, along, you know, whether you want to say, like, progressive lines or more, you know, socially just lines, like, whatever mm-hmm. it is, it's a momentous undertaking it's not easy uh and i think the history of the soviet union can show us that because so much of what came out of that right so much of what the soviet union was the surveillance state right the um like i guess i'll just sort of summarize my the theory that a lot of russian historians have it's it's that you know look like tons of societies were doing these things uh, in world war one surveilling their population centralizing production um, you know, conscripting thousands and thousands of men and sending them to the front line, like becoming more mil- militaristic, you know, using nationalism and other, you know, slogans to, to boost, you know, like basically using state propaganda, mm-hmm. using all of these things from Great Britain to the United States to Russia. Uh, it's just that the war sort of ends in, in a sense for those countries, uh, but it continues in the Soviet Union. So really, like the Soviet state is a war state that just never stopped fighting the war. And, you know, perhaps a good analogy for that, and this just kind of pops in my head, and I really appreciate our listeners who have to listen to, like, my meanderings, and I'm just lucky they're, <laughs> they're just lucky they can't see all my wild, violent hand gestures. But, you know, perhaps like the drug war is, is something that is relatable to Americans that can that can sort of, like, put this like put this uh, in, a, in a little bit of perspective, right? Which is that, um, you know, under in the 60s and the 70s, there is an increased, you know, use of of, uh, of narcotics, right? I mean, you know, you can think that's good, you can think that's bad, but 
Uh, right. Regardless, like what happens is the state decides to step in and, and decides to say like, OK, well, we're going to launch a war on drugs and we're not going to stop till this thing's over. And look at how much that war, that mentality or even like the war on terror. Maybe that's another that's another good example. Look at how that rhetoric and look at how the tactics for that have bled into so much else, like so many other aspects of our life. Oh yeah, I mean it's right? it's um, I like I, I don't know if it's necessarily um, fair to compare, compare it with with the Soviet Union, but like because it seems to me it's more of just you know outright leaning into fascism as a you know the use of the use of, of policing as basically occupying communities, right? Like this, like this is a hostile, hostile occupation. And, you know, maybe that is, you know, that's, I can push back on your theory that like this has to be kind of an external, external force that pushes a revol, pushes, you know, revolution, revolutionary change. Um, because at a certain point, even though, uh, even though nominally, uh, like police forces are an internal mm-hmm. force, uh, in a lot of communities, they they are effectively um, o- outside occupations. Like there's yeah, there's it, very little there's very little practical difference um, for communities between having the police constantly patrolling your neighborhood. Um, like a lot of the stuff that, you know, like Mike Bloomberg's New York NYPD uh, was doing, there's very little distinction between that and, say, U.S. forces in Iraq, in occupying yeah, Iraq sure. or occupying and, Afghanistan. And maybe I, I want to clarify a little bit like what I was talking about earlier, uh, which is that, like, I guess I don't want to say that it always has to be an external force, mm-hmm. but there has to be something. Uh, and, and maybe like external, like external to the movement itself that comes in and, you know, create like essentially has this leveling effect where it wipes away all these sort of structures that we're talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. And then you're you're left with what? Like you're sort of left with, you know, a tab like a blank slate and it's much easier to start over. So, right. that, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to be an occupying army. Right. Like a society can do this to itself uh, as well. And I mean, you know, to go back to your example, like I'm, I'm thinking about like what David Simon um, said. I don't remember where he said it, but, you know, David Simon uh, is a TV producer like he did The Wire uh, he did um, like the Deuce, Baltimore uh, Homicide Hero. on the yeah. yeah like like yeah Homicide Life on the Streets and he was talking I want to say it was in Australia but I mean he was saying like you know essentially like with people who are like not from the United States and even people who live in the United States um, what a lot of them don't understand is that there really are like two or three Americas right like there's not right. there's not one you know like there's the one that um, you know, that like there's the suburbs, right? There's the one that's occupied by or there's the one that's there's that space that's occupied by mostly like white, like the white middle, like professional class, um, very different way of life. Right. Very different uh, attitude towards the government. And on and to, like on the flip side, a very different attitude from the government about them. Uh, 
And that's sort of, you know, one of David Simon's Americas. And, you know, the rest is sort of what he says is like this forgotten area of America where we don't build physical walls, but we kind of physically wall these places off, like places with no jobs, with no mm -hmm. hope, no future. Uh, and we just sort of treat them as these foreign spaces within our country that we send the police force in to, you know, to deal with, to like to keep in order. Uh, and that is the reality of a lot of people in the United States. Um, but to get, you know, to get back to, sorry, like I, I just, as we talk about this, it, it makes me think about, um, you know, going back to that Soviet project. So like, you know, right, there is this leveling, right? Like there, there is this destruction of the old order through the First World War and the Bolsheviks take its place, right? right? And, and let's forget that there's the Russian Civil War, which intensifies... Um, you know, which intensifies the surveillance state, which intensifies the assaults from the government on its own people, right, to, you know, quell the civil war. Uh, as well as, like, the, that, the intensifying the, the um, idea that, like, there is outside forces acting against it. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, I, re I remember there's this great article, I, uh, the title of an article, it's about the French Revolution, and it's like, you know, you, you aren't paranoid if they really are out to get you. And it was sort of, like talking about the French revolutionary state and, you know, it's it's like the, the paranoia sweeping through France about all the European powers coming to strangle the revolution. Mm -hmm. And I mean, really, like all of Europe did line up to try and stop the French revolution. Uh, and right. to, some, to some extent, like that happens in the Soviet Union, right? Like Britain, Japan, the Germany, the United States all intervene in the Russian Civil War. I mean, this was the whole point of NATO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is the cold. NATO's like the cold. Yeah, war. like the the whole cold cold war motivating, like, like the whole reason we were involved in. Oh, uh, containment. Yeah, yeah like the containment, containment theory. Domino theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And uh, but you know where I'm going with this is like eventually the civil war ends. You know, right? Like there's there's a time to now there's like a time to rebuild this society, and I and. And here, I think, is like the real challenge of the revolutionary. And and for and for some people, too, like if you've seen Westworld, I think we might have talked about this briefly, uh, maybe not in, in this, uh, not in a recent episode, but like Westworld was always so fascinating to me, like the, the character of Dolores, right? right? He's like, we need to destroy everything. We need to wipe these people out. And even if I have to kill my fellow, um, you know, my, oh, what do they even call them? It's called so hosts. But, like, the robots. Yeah, like, if I have to kill my fellow host to get it done, so be it, right? Because the 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 uh, the end result is going to be a place where we're in charge. It's going to be a place right. that's our world. And that is, I mean, I think that's the ultimate challenge facing any sort of revolutionary in these moments, right? It's, you've taken over. Um, it's time to sort of, turn away from those external enemies uh, and and rebuild your society, like build the dream that you're talking about. And so often, and like this is, you know, this is like the real challenge. And this is something that I think sort of gets, you know, unfairly put on the left, but that, right, every time that we're trying to rebuild this society there's like there's the you know sort of long way of gradual change of um you know perhaps not resorting to violence 
um, of using the state apparatus in a way that's, you know, sort of, you know, like for lack of a better word, like and to use this kind of a hollow word like good. Right. There's that. And then there's this challenge that, you know, someone like the Bolsheviks face and the route that they decide to go down, which is OK, like we've like we've have we have we've accrued this huge body count ours right. and theirs. And now what do we do? Right. Like when when a revolutionary movement like that is born out of violence, it almost, I think, in a sense, becomes like desensitized to it. Because when you have like when you are standing on top of a heap of bodies and you're the last one standing, so to speak, it's like, well, what's a few more uh, just to keep going and build the society that we that we actually want. Right. And so, you know, to, to go back to this, like this is the choice the Bolsheviks face to so, like we, we have this state that has been built to fight a war. And right. we used it so far to win, to, to solidify the revolution. And then here's like there's that temptation, right? Like, why can't we use that same state to transform everything in in the way that we want it to be? And, you know, perhaps like that is a great sort of um, like moment to stop and reflect on, because that is, I think, what is going to dictate so much of, of the next you know, century of human existence, because we are facing a series of, I think, like escalating problems, uh, some related to climate change, uh, some related to deindustrialization, uh, some related to, um, you know, some some related to the fact that we live in, in increasingly aging societies, right, where like the whole, you know, demographic pyramid is inversed. And, you know, now, like, I, I don't necessarily care if you're on the, like, what side of the political spectrum you're on. Um, when, when we talk about, like, Trumpism and when we're, when we're going to talk about, like, Sanders and Biden, right, it's like, how are we going to use the tools of the state to combat what we see as problems? Yeah, I... I kind of want to push back on that because I just, sure. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily like, um, I don't want to say that, you know, bloodless revolutions are impossible. Um, cause I mean, like you, I'm, I'm sure there are, are some examples of them. Um, and I, I also don't want to make clear that it's not, that you can have a revolutionary process where the revolutionaries just, you know, always get out of touch and, and forget, you know, you know, it's like that, it's like that old trope, right? Like don't become the thing you're fighting against. Um, but it's like, to me, that just, that just feels like squishy liberalism and incrementalism. And, I think I would point to the history of the history of revolutionary politics um, in South America and as examples of this. And I think this is part of kind of the context that we need to put these things in is that there has to be an awareness of the constant forces that are acting against you. Right. Like, 
Bernie caught a lot of flack for making comments that uh, he said that Castro did the, the, the Cuban revolution. One of the things they did was literacy programs. And they massively turned around uh, the literacy rates in, um, in Cuba. And part of the reason that they're able to do that is because uh, Castro had to be able to, you know, stay in power, basically stay in power to, to do, to exercise those programs. And I think ideally you don't want to have to do these things in a totalitarian, uh, dictatorial manner. But then also, ideally, you don't have the um, you don't have the intelligence agency of the superpower ninety miles away from you doing how many assassination attempts did the CIA? It was like six hundred. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I... right? And so, like, I think the difference there, and um, it, you know, we have examples of what I think you would say are revolutionary movements uh, in South America that didn't go the Castro route and didn't make um, alliances with uh, the military that might that might make those uh, those of us more on the democratic socialist side of things a little uncomfortable. But, you know, Castro's told Salvador Allende of Chile, he said, you know, watch out. You need to make, you need to be, you need to be strong and you need to make sure that the people in the military are on your side and you need to be willing to take up arms for this. Otherwise they'll kill you. And I ended, yeah. I did, did not follow that advice. And look what happened. Yeah, right? no, and Pinochet happened. No, yeah. I, I don't disagree. I mean, I, I, I think that like, you know, to go back to Sanders's comments and everything, like, you know, in, in a vacuum, are, are they not like, you know, are they out of context? I mean, on, on his side to just like look at one aspect of Castro, like, yes. Uh, and I agree with you, too, that it's also out of context to say like, well, you know, so much of like radicalism throughout like a place like South America is is a reaction to intervention attempts from the United States. Right. And like in many ways, like we uh, the United States government's actions radicalized many of these movements. But I mean, I guess like what I would say, like to go back to the point of like what I was trying to make earlier is what's fascinating to me anyway, is that and, and perhaps this is because the drug war and the war on terror and the and the government's intervention in the 2008 financial crisis uh, and, and all of these things have happened. Like, I don't think anymore that we are that we have to political that we have two governments or two political parties that are like where one is just like oh less government is better you know like the sort the sort of reagan thing like i'm you know the, the like the mm -hmm. worst thing you can say is i'm from the government and i'm here to help you and and the you know feckless liberals on the other side like the the tax and spend that's what they used to them like the tax and spend liberal who will you know just take all your tax money increase the size of the government like I guess what I'm what I'm pointing at is like perhaps 
because of, you know, the war on drugs and nation and climate change and like all of these things adding up, uh, like maybe we are closer to the Soviet Union than I thought at the beginning of this episode. Like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I guess my whole point is just like, is Trump really talking about dismantling the state in the way that, say, like Ronald Reagan would? I mean, sure, they're they're doing the classic tax cuts to the rich. Uh, they're, you know, they're deregulating uh, all these industries like sure yeah that, i would that... i would i would absolutely say that yes because i mean like the way that now maybe i think there might be a um a little bit of a difference between the two in in terms of you know free data i mean trump is definitely much more of an economic protectionist but or at least he he claims to be um still, there's still the idea of that we're going to use uh we're going to use the police as kind of an occupying force we're still going to uh surveil minority populations um yeah and and, and that 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 part's true and i mean i guess the other things that i was thinking about is like no one really like the people like oh i think a lot of his voters would would like if you gave them lists of priorities i don't think deregulation and minimizing the size of the federal government would would be up there right, right. in terms of like one and two but like let's look at what he did use the state for the wall right right the trade deal like to attack china right using national trade policy to attack china like let's look at like the the billions in farm subsidies right like there are other areas where he has used the government, right? Like, and and used this structure, uh, and and oh, I, man, I you know I, I feel bad for forgetting this. Like all the deportations, right? Like where did the apparatus for that come from? It, it wasn't something that they created overnight. Like it was already there, right? Uh, and so, courtesy of the Obama administration, you know, and like and and what did they declare oh i feel so bad for forgetting this like what did they declare to be a national emergency um uh, oh yeah like it, Im immigration was it the trade was it the trade deficits no they they uh they, they declared it a, an emergency so you could use the wall funding oh that's right yeah it was it, it was Sorry, it I... was illegal immigration he declared it a yeah. national emergency to use use wall funding and 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 I guess like here's where I'm going with this, and like I'm not saying that this is necessarily bad. I'm just saying like these. Uh, I'm, uh, sorry, I'm not saying that what Trump did is necessarily bad. That is bad. Like I want to be right. clear about that. Like that is bad. But <laughs> where I'm going with this is like if you look at Bernie's campaign website, what's one of the things he says he's going to do? He's going to declare climate change to be a national emergency. Right. And and so sort of here's where I'm trying to make a, a little bit of a connection, right? Do you think that Bernie would have done that if Trump hadn't already done that for illegal immigration? I mean, poss possibly, but like I I, I I get your point. I I get your the the point you're making. Um, I think it's possible that they would have gone gone the uh, the use of the national emergency route, but there is definitely like an aspect of this that like okay, well. If you're going to tear up all of these norms, then we're going to use, you know, we're not going to to keep following them, them too, which is something that, you know, the, the Democrats and quote unquote liberals in this country have had a very hard time doing, right? Like, uh, how many times ha 
have they suggested that, has Schumer suggested that if they get back into power in the Senate, that they're going to reimpose the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, right? Like, I guess my, my point is, is that it seems like we have entered this era where, you know, because of these sort of, because of things like the war on drugs and the war on terror, right? Like all these things that we, like that the state has become so entwined, ingrained in our way of life in, in a way that perhaps we haven't perceived that like, you know, now the question isn't about dismantling the state or uh, it's, it's about using it for your own purposes. And so for a certain segment of the population, like that seems to be to, you know, uh, in air quotes, you know, well, I guess we've already made the country great again. So keeping it great again, in air quotes, right. and, and those, and those who say, okay, well, we want to use the state to have a, you know, like, even if you're Joe Biden, right? I mean, like the, uh, a public option, um, you know, I, I think, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like, there's much more like, say, compared to, 1980s, you know, 70s American politics, right? There I, there seems to me to be a much more willing, like much more of a willingness on the sides of both parties now uh, to, to, to use the state to achieve their political ends, uh, whether those are, you know, abhorrent uh, in, you know, my personal opinion, or, you know, something more noble, again, in my well, personal okay, so what opinion, do you, I like, guess, like Medicare for all. Yeah, so what do you... I guess I'm not sure what you mean by use the state here, because I, to me, it is still, um, it, it's still a function of the state is basically what Reagan used to enact his, you know, political project. Uh, sure. That that like you know the state is basically hands off. We're letting we're handing power over to corporations, but. Um, I mean, like, I guess, like, I don't, I don't want to get into like a whole statism versus no statism um, argument because I think like that is a little bit more of a uh, uh, esoteric conversation to have about you know what what Marxism, socialism, communism, all that actually means. But like, it, in all of these situations, the state still maintained its monopoly on violence. Like as the only legitimate violent actor. And I think in that regard, there's just as much uh, leveraging of state power to achieve your political ends uh, in both Reagan and in in Trump. Right. Like it's the state was just as critical in. Um. Uh, you know, achieving what Reagan wanted in uh, deregulation and allowing uh, increased power of corporations. Sure. Okay. I, because I, I... Right, like, because they're the ones that are, you know, like if if you try to resist any any corporate action, right? Like it's it's the cops that get called on you. If you are in, if you're, if you are in a Reaganite society, and you try and go on rent strike, it's the cops that come and lock you out of your your sure, apartment. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. All right. 
Um, I'm glad that you pushed back on this because you're making me rethink my own position, which is always good <laughs> on something that rarely happens. But no, I guess this is what I would say is that so, yes, like. Um, I think there's to, always to, to put it, of, if I can just put it this way quick, like sure. the state was always in, in both uh, Trump and uh, Reagan. And I actually think this is for a lot of Democrat administrations, too. The state was always the enforcement arm of capital, of capital interest. Yeah, and that's that has been the um, that has been the through line through all of this. I think maybe outside, like maybe in some certain trade aspects of the Trump administration, you see the state pushing back on on capital interest, but. In those cases, I would say that it's done in the interest of long-term preservation, right? Like, this is, it's kind of like, yes, it sucks to be the capitalist that has to deal with uh, trade wars with China now, but we're doing this so that you can, um, we are doing this so that you don't get abolished, that we are doing this in a way, like, this is, you know, this is like the fascist bargain, right? Like, you can... The, the capitalist and capital class are free to exploit and abuse labor, but there is going to be that guarantee that the fundamental needs will still be met. Okay, sure, sure. So I don't I don't disagree with that. Um, I guess where... And, and again, like, I'm glad you pushed back. I mean, I guess I would say what... Uh, sort of what my point is, is like, sure, like Reagan used the state, right? Mm -hmm. um, conservatives use the state. But the I guess the question is, or like, I think the ultimate issue is, and, you know, it, it took us forever to get there, but I'm finally here. <laughs> it's it's what kind of state, right? Right. And so when okay. we look at like the Soviet Union uh, and, we, and we look at its surveillance programs and we look at uh, its collectivization efforts and we look at its, you know, centralization of the economy and all of those things, like the groundwork was laid for it already, right? Like the, those elements were already there. So they could just sort of step in and use them. And so I guess what my point is, is that if we look at like the, the uh, war on drugs, the war on terror, mm -hmm. all of these uh, the intervention in 2008 uh, of the of the state into the economy um, and all those sort of factors like that helps, I think, to lay the groundwork for how candidates now talk about using the state. Right. Because they don't in some level like they don't have to convince people to completely realign the state uh, because it's it's already been done for them. And so the question is, is like, how am I just going to use these tools that I have in my, you know, state toolbox that have been put there by my predecessors? Okay, so in, in a way, like, I'm agreeing with you, yes, because Reagan used what was given to him, right? And he right. Like, used it to create something else, right? Like, Trump used what was given to him, and he used it to create something else. And, like, perhaps a, a, a good example of this would be like, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and other Democrats talking about just forgiving student loan debt. Because what does it come back to again and again? Like, well, hey, you forgave you like these big banks made a ton of poor economic decisions uh, right. that 
you know, did way like did that did way. Are you saying jeopardize... are you saying us going to law school was a poor economic decision? <laughs> uh, you know that that remains to be seen. Um, <laughs> um, but right, like if right. the two thousand eight you know tarp and all that didn't happen, would people be able to talk about universal student loan forgiveness? Maybe they would. I don't know. I just I see a connection. Okay. Yeah. No. I I agree. I agree with that. Um, and I mean, I think like there is definitely, there's definitely some amount of the, the Trump administration's operation has been just taking the, um, absolutely incredible expansion of executive power and authority under the Obama administration and putting it to nefarious ends. Yeah. And then, and then I think the question is, is like, is the next president, whether it's Biden, whether it's Sanders, uh, whether it's Trump, um, says, you know what, I'm not going to halt the advance of this, right? Like, right. I'm, I'm, I've been put in office to enact an agenda, uh, and I'm going to use, I'm going to use all the uh, things that are available to me, and yeah, I mean, like that is, I think, a legitimate, you know, concern. Uh, and so, but I mean, I think that like, that's where we are, where, um, you know, well, I think that, I think the takeaway from this is that like, whenever you have these movements, you know, they, they reflect the situations that preceded them. Yes. Right. Like the, the, the quote from Lenin is that, uh, he, oh, what is it? It's like, he took power or he found power just lying in the street and he took it. Yeah, right, like, yeah, like that, 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 familiar. That, that basically like everything was there and all of the like the Rube Goldberg machine of the Russian Revolution was <laughs> set up by people other than him. And all he had to do was just, you know, flip that first switch and the reaction started happening. Um, I think and I think actually, you know, if, like if we want to. Um, if we really want to draw comparisons, I, I think there's an element of that with Trump, right? Like, sure, everything was set up for someone to come in with that type of right populist messaging. And, um, you know, we've actually had this this discussion before, um, not on the podcast, but, you know, like, it, what if Trump in 2016, he didn't run as a Republican, he ran as a Democrat and, you know, it's entirely possible that he still, if it weren't for the DNC's uh, primary process being um, more, or I should say less, less democratic than the Republicans, that he could have, he could have won the democratic primary too. Um, just because again, like after 30, 40 some odd years of deindustrialization, bad trade deals, uh, gutting of the American manufacturing core. Um, and it, racism. It, well, yeah, racism. And, uh, you know, like, like loss of countless blood and treasure in these, you know, forever wars that all it takes is just someone to come in and start, you know, pushing those, pushing the right, you know, push the right domino over. And then 
boom, next thing you know, there's there's your revolution. And, you know, it, it is in some ways revolutionary because a lot of what we're seeing is unprecedented. A lot yeah. of these political norms that may have prevented other uh other actors from wielding power in the way that they like are just completely thrown out the window. Yeah. And, and then, you know, and again, and like the question becomes like, you know, what happens with that? Like, let's say that, um, you know, like, I don't know, like, let's say that, uh, well here, you know, maybe we can, I, I do have to kind of wrap this up. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, like, well, one thing that I'm thinking about is, uh, like the, the notion on the left, uh, for, for, for court packing. Right. And and like this notion of like okay well Mitch McConnell uh, like we didn't fire the first shot you know Mitch McConnell did and he was the one that weaponized this process and he was the one that took that you know inserted not removed but inserted politics into the uh, into the into the judiciary and so there's no going back uh, we might as well just embrace it or or not embrace it but like you know make the best out of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like that is, you know, that that is something where I don't know, like if you would have told me uh, pre 2016 that like the that the that we should pack the court, I would be like, well, like what would be to like what would prevent the Republicans from just packing the court when they take over? Uh, But, you know, now Well, I think I think the more I think the more revolution, maybe the more revolutionary idea that that you start looking at there is. you know, you just you just start start going Andrew Jackson. Say yeah. say, okay, who cares? <laughs> like yeah, the court can say whatever it wants. It doesn't have any authority. I yeah, mean like I, I mean look, that... like uh that's not in the constitution. It, it was a completely invented idea of um judicial review. It's it's not in the constitution. And I think there's a there's a legitimate argument that any president can make to say, like, well, they don't actually have that power, so I'm not going to listen to them. Well, it's sort of like what, uh, like, I, I can't remember the exact context of it, but, like, somebody told Stalin that, about, like, the Pope and his concern with communism, and Stalin's response was, like, something to the effect of, like, and how many divisions does the Pope have? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Like, you know, like, who cares? I mean, it's um, not like, because... it's, it's not like a, not necessarily, like, making a, um, a, a might makes right argument here, but, like, um... If you're going to see a, if you're going to see something behaving in a political fashion, then you engage it politically, and that means that, that means that the Supreme Court can no longer be above reproach. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, you know, like I said, I don't know where we go. Um, I mean, maybe this is a good way to end this too. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, we started off talking about Joe Biden and, um, and Bernie Sanders and we, and American politics on some way. And like, you know, I, I said that it's always sort of foolhardy to predict the future mm-hmm. uh, and try and, and try to figure out where things are going to go. Um, you know, all that being said, and again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, that I don't believe that Joe Biden can defeat Donald Trump. Right. I mean, I think if anything, like 2016 showed that there's just so many things that that, you know, overeducated people like me having podcasts just don't know. <laughs> and, and I'm going to totally I you know I will totally admit that. But right. I, I do think that 
it's misguided for people to think. And again, I, I, I'm not saying Biden can't beat Trump. I mean, I think that, you know, unlike 2016, well, first off, Biden's a man. Like, let's just put that out there. Yep. Um, he's going to have ton. He's going to have maybe a billion. He's going to have a million. At least he's going to have millions of Bloomberg money. Right. Because, like, right. I don't know what Bloomberg said to Trump or vice versa in New York social circles, but Bloomberg clearly despises Trump. So it looks like and, you know, what's spending uh, even like 600, 700, 800 million to help Joe Biden? Like it's nothing to him. Mm -hmm. There's that to, to take into account. Uh, and there's also, I think, the biggest X factor, and that's Barack Obama, who is still like immensely respected, who's immensely popular and who, you know, again, because we talked about norms, right? Like talk about somebody who adhered to political norms, Right. Like it was by or was Obama out there campaigning hardcore for Hillary in 2016 was Obama like, hey, voters, just so you know, like it looks like the Russians are actively in this in, in this election. Right. Like, right. Didn't do that. But right. anyway, going going back to him, like he was, you know, he was like maybe you could call him like the last decent man in uh, in American politics recently anyway. And um He's going to be out there campaigning for Joe Biden. So all that, but so all that being said, like I, I do think that um, you know that Biden can win in 2016, and like you know I, I don't want to sound like I'm you know because I supported Bernie Sanders, and I don't want to sound like I'm bitter because people, other people in the Democratic Party, like the more that I think about it, like they have their reasons for making their choices, and and I want to respect that. But like what I would say just to, and, and, and we'll finish this, is like, I don't think there's any, I don't think that we're going back to, to like pre-2016. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's... I, I don't think that we can wind the clock back. I don't think that's going to happen. That is... And that's not... I would say oh, that, that is, I think that is the real question that um, I don't know if, if necessarily the results of this primary and then general election will answer it, but like that is the question that we're searching for the answer for is can this be unwound or can can the toothpaste go back in the tube here and i don't know if it can right because we we've we've talked this like last hour and a half or so about the complete how how in all of these revolutionary moments one of the things you see is a complete flattening of society and complete flattening of um political norms, political infrastructure, uh, institutions, things like that. If you have, if you have that flattening happen, I don't believe it's possible to just completely reverse course and pretend that it didn't happen. And now I'm not saying that's what happened in 2016, but a lot of flattening did occur. And so the question is, how much are we going to pretend that it didn't and just ignore, ignore the damage that was done to those norms and institutions? Right. Or is it, is it going to say, okay, the old, you know, the old, the old gods are dead, long live the new gods, right? Like that it's, yeah. that this well, is, no, I mean, we've completely it's changed like I... society and now we have to figure out where we go from here, which is yeah, a scary exactly. process. And I think a lot of people are, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable as yeah. kind of you've mentioned. 
It does. I, I, it does. And I mean, and that's not to say that like that couldn't happen even with Joe Biden, because I mean, who knows? Right. Like, uh, like I, I sometimes think about like someone like Lyndon Johnson, right? Who who would have thought that he would have been the one that would have enacted the Great Society programs and right. you know all those other sorts of things? So I mean, again, you never know. I mean, but I guess what I would say is, um, you know, I don't know if we can go back to to pre twenty sixteen. I think that there are new forces out there that are active, right? I mean, I think that like the the United States government and like how the United States people are governed uh, has changed dramatically. Uh, I think the definition of who belongs in the United States has changed uh, dramatically uh, for the worse. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and the question is like, can, you know, and, and, and then, well, the qu first question is like, can we go back? And then I think the other question is, do we want to go back? Right. Um, and yeah, sort of what I, what I sometimes fear about a Biden victory is like, there'll be this huge sigh of relief. And, you know, I like say that he wins, you know, there will be this huge sigh of relief he's sworn in. And then it's like, well, now what? Right. You know, and what what do we do next? The um, reactionary forces that I think the, the, the end game there is that the reactionary forces that we saw bring us a Trump presidency will only redouble their efforts and grow stronger. And oh, I mean, we'll you'll wind up on Fox News. Yeah, you'll, you'll wind up with something worse after yeah after um biden after a biden presidency i mean potentially you know i mean who knows uh maybe forces emerge like maybe once the presidency is secure um force like the 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 progressive left wing uh in the democratic party becomes more assertive and by saying like okay well we gave you what you wanted you know or like now yeah. we have the presidency and you told us, well, we can't have these debates like we can't talk about the party and its structure and its future while it's under like while this country is under threat like that. Well, that time's over now. So now, you know, now we've waited long enough. You know, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. It's like I never want to try to predict the future uh, on this show. Uh, but I think what I can tell like, I mean, you know, what we have said for the last hour and a half is when we look at these revolutionary movements and we look at moments in, in history where there are where there is profound change, there's always been some sort of force, whether it be internal, external, like there's always been a great leveling uh, effect that's happened that's allowed these revolutionary movements to take over. Um, that's you know that's the one thing you know a lot of their argument about the need for change has sort of been rendered moot because well it's like well, we just got to rebuild so like the house is already in ruins so we don't have to even talk about tearing it down. Um, you know, that's one part of it. Uh, another part of it is regardless of what sort of political force you're talking about, whether then, a you know, quote unquote, small government, you know, conservative movement within the United States, you're going to get the Tories in Britain and, and how they're, you know, like how they're, I think, becoming more, uh, willing to use the state, uh, or I shouldn't say just willing to use the state, but like how, how the attitude towards the state has changed and, and where, you know, where, how we, we look at that is look at the Soviet Union and look at how the wartime Russian state, the surveillance state, the grain you know, requisitioning, all of that. Look how they just sort of like were given the car and they just put the key in the ignition and took off. Right. There's always that sort of temptation. So when we look at the United States right now, whatever president, it, whoever it's going to be, uh, we know that one thing is going to be true. 
they are going to, you know, for lack of a better word, like get into the driver's seat of the Trump exemption. What they choose to do with that is up to them. But there's on some way, there's no going back. Right. Like, you know, you you could make something new, but we're always making new things out of out of the old. And so it's going to happen too, no matter who wins, whether it's Biden, Sanders, Trump, whoever. They're all going to inherit that executive branch. So that's that's another thing. And I think, you know, a third thing is and when we do talk about uh, living in a society where things have disintegrated or like norms have disappeared uh, in, in a way that isn't measurable in like decades, but years, sometimes even it seems like months, uh, is there any going back? And I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, and I, again, I guess the question would be like, go back to what? Um, but nevertheless, like, can the old political norms return to Washington I, I, I kind of doubt it. Um, again, because if, if we look at these movements throughout history, um, even when there's a so-called restoration, right, like even right. when there's like conservative forces come back to power, they're not the same ones that were displaced in the first place. Uh, so, I mean, you know, all things to, I guess, keep in mind as we move forward, because I don't know what the history of the United States is going to be, right? Like those pages are still to be or yet to be written. Like what's going to happen in 2020 and beyond. But I mean, what I can tell you is that we are creatures or we are beings that are a product of our own history. Um, And we are born into it. We live in it, whether we know it's there or not. And and it impacts us whether or not we want to believe it or not. And everything that we've done in some way is a reflection of where we've come from. And so, again, like the whole reason we started this podcast is to say, like, well, where did we come from? Right. And we're using the lens of Russia uh, to sort of help that. But, you know, again, like all things to keep in mind as we move forward, you know, for those of you who have yet to vote in a primary, because so many are still or a caucus. I don't know if there are any caucuses left. I don't Um, think so. Yeah, I don't think so. So for those of you who still have to vote, you know, that's you know, that's for you to think about in a primary. And also, you know, as we come up on the general. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, thing, you know, certainly things to keep in mind. So, you know, on that note, um, we're going to go ahead and I think and wrap this uh, wrap this show up uh, in terms of, you know, what we're going to talk about for for next time. Uh, I, I don't really have an idea yet. Um, I'm going to have to take uh, a little bit of time and I mean, not too long, but I'm going to have to think about it. But anyway, uh, as always, like we're glad that you've put up with us. Uh, we hope that you've, you know, learned a little bit of insight and, you know, we certainly hope that. Again, while we don't try to predict the future, we we hope that we've given you a better perspective about what all of this that we're going through now means uh, and, and, you know, and what you can do about it. Uh, So, you know, with that being said, you know, go forth and and be kind to one another. (laughs) (laughs) To 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 paraphrase uh, the Marx Marx quote, other other podcasts try to only discuss the future. We we try to change it. episode at a time. Yeah. All right. So we'll catch 
Oh, 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 oh,